The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. If your brother causes you, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What has been usually seen as this guide for leaders for how to manage conflict in the church, this passage is directed to individuals in the church who find themselves in the midst of conflict with another person. And if you notice, if you have a red letter Bible with you, you'll notice that these are the words of Jesus. And so often when we say, God, what should I do? Or what's your will for me? Or um, I just want to hear from you in this situation that I'm having. We get to hear from God because the, these scriptures are the word of God. And to hear them and to, to digest them and understand them and apply them in our life is to hear from God. And these are Jesus' words to us that are so good. And so peace Peace among Christian believers, among believers, is so essential that God, God commands us to resolve conflict whenever it arises in a way that, that encourages forgiveness and encourages restoration between two people and, and reconciliation uh, between people that are, that are in conflict. And it's actually possible. This is the great news that I want to put before you is that, that when you are hurt, or when you have hurt another person, that God lays before us a way that we can actually restore that relationship in a way that it's actually even better having done that than it was before. And so conflict doesn't have to be this, this scary thing. It's something for our good and the good of, of others. And so how Christians deal with their feelings when they're hurt or offended by another person might be among the most uh, neglected commands in all of the Bible. I'm convinced of this. It's one we don't think about a lot in the church. We're aware of what the Bible says. I mean, if you've been around the church for a long time or been a Christian, grew up in a Christian home, or even recently become a Christian, you know what the big sins are for Christianity. I mean, you're, you're aware of these things that you, that you should not do. You're aware of adultery or sexual immorality or abuse or, or murder. These are the big things, but these aren't the only serious sins in God's eyes. In fact, among the most grievous sins to, to God and even to his people are sins like gossip and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and anger towards others who have hurt us. These are, these are serious sins in, in God's eyes. And so when preaching on the Sermon of the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount that we discussed uh, months ago, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will, become, they will be called sons of God. He goes on further to explain that if you or your brother or sister indulge in these feelings of, of bitterness and anger or, or unforgiveness, it will expose them and, and it will expose them to the judgment of God. It will actually put them in a, in a bad place with God and expose them to, to God's judgment. And so we should, out of concern for others, 
we should be concerned for their well-being. So if there's bitterness or anger in someone's heart, we should, we should want to go and, and to love them so that they would, not be, um, they would not be subject to God's judgment. So I just want to state an obvious thing out here from the onset. Talking with somebody about conflict is usually a very unpleasant and uncomfortable thing. Can I just get some head nods? <laughs> Talking about pe- two people, about how we feel, how we have been hurt, is a, probably among the most unpleasant and uncomfortable things that we can do. We often let tensions build to a point of, of breaking, a point of exploding on a person. Uh, in our anger, when we're finally able to get the energy or courage to confront somebody, we, we just unload weeks or days or years of hurts with a list of all the ways that we have been offended and all the ways we have been wronged. Or we, we neglect to, to talk at all. We completely neglect or abandon that person who has hurt us, which effectively just destroys that relationship. I don't know which one you find yourself in, what, what, which, which place you would go more frequently, whether you just hold it all inside and then eventually just unleash a list of all the wrongdoing of that person, or if you just write that person off completely. Almost this attitude of, well, that's one less person that's in my life. And you have effectively destroyed that relationship. You've effectively kind of cast that person out. It increases tension in that relationship. It decreases the likelihood for any opportunity of restoration or friendship that is regained for the future. Or we process our hurts. Here's a third way. Instead of exploding or neglecting the person, we process our hurts by just talking about that person to other people. So we, we, we work through all those problems. We talk bad about the person. We want to harm that person's reputation. And it makes us feel better when we talk to other people about how that person has hurt us, hoping maybe to gain an ally, maybe even just to make ourselves feel better about how we have been hurt. And so we, we talk about it. And, and in doing that, we, we multiply the conflict as we involve other people in this conflict. And the conflict gets bigger and bigger, which, min, which, which maximizes our chance of losing a friendship forever. Well, those are some scary situations, and I know that we all find ourselves in those situations. And why stop now? Why stop now after Matthew has been for 43 weeks for us? Just, it's been a, 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 a great book, but also a very t- a, a tough book. It's challenged our heart. Why stop now and talk about something really easy? Let's keep talking about something difficult for us. Um, the love of God and His church expressed in this passage, in this passage, opens the door for an entirely different way of dealing with our conflict, dealing with our hurts. You see, it doesn't have to be one of those three options. It doesn't have to be unleashing on somebody like a, like a bomb in their life, neglecting them and writing them off, or gossiping with others. It could be a third option. And, and Jesus, here in his words, he, he, he opens the door for an entirely different way of dealing with our hurts and talking with others in the church who are sinning or wandering from Christ and hurting the relationship that they have with us. And it's very, very good. He welcomes us into His love and grace. And so this is an invitation for all of us. Not a single one of us, I believe, are excluded from this kind of teaching. Not a single one of us have excluded, because we've all found ourselves hurt or have done the hurt, and have fallen into error in one of these three ways. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, which a couple weeks ago we went through this passage, where He said, Go and make disciples. 
This is Jesus' most famous command for his mission. And here he says in Matthew 18, go and tell him his fault. This might be Jesus' most famous command for restoration and building friendship and maintaining friendship. So if his most famous thing for the mission of God is go and make disciples, Jesus' most famous words for restoring friendship and maintaining friendship in the church is go and tell him his fault. If God calls you a Christian, then he also calls you a missionary. If God calls you a Christian, then he also calls you a peacemaker. It's not just suited for those who are spiritually gifted in hospitality and communication. Whether you are extroverted or introverted or socially awkward, God calls you a peacemaker. And so whatever role we play and whatever mix of gifts we have, any person who calls him or herself a Christian, God calls a peacemaker. A peacemaker is different than a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is someone who is, whose main motivation is to keep the peace, right? A peacekeeper and, and avoid conflict of any kind. And so you may find yourself in a peaceful relationship because you never talk to anybody about what's hurting you. You never confront anybody on the wrong that they have done or the wrong that you have done. And so you just kind of sweep things over the, under the rug over a long period of time. And you think, well, I'm in peaceful relationships. I don't have conflict. And, I'm, and you may be, well, you don't have conflict because you've never told anybody they're ever wrong. And so Jesus calls us not to just to keep the peace, but to make it, to cultivate it, to pursue it in our lives with others. So peacemaker is one who goes into the uncomfortable places. The peacemaker is the one who goes on into the conversations out of obedience to Jesus and out of love for our brother or sister in Christ, whom he has called us to live with and to have friendship with. And so imagine there is a way, imagine for a moment that there could be a way to talk to people in your life who have hurt you and offended you in such a way that that relationship would be stronger after that conversation than it was before. Can you picture that? That's what I want to keep our eyes on. That's, what, that's, the, that's the hope that we have. That there's an actual way we could talk to people and strengthen our friendships rather than hurt them. There's understandable reasons why we avoid confrontation. Uh, if, if we are the one being confronted, it's, it's really humiliated humiliating. If someone comes to you and says, I need to tell you about all the ways that you have hurt me, I mean, that's so embarrassing, isn't it? It's humiliating. You're exposed, and, you, and, and now you know that there are people that are thinking about you in a, in a negative light. And that's a really humiliating place to be in. Have you ever felt that way? Did you ever know that there's people talking about you, and you found out people were talking about you, and they weren't nice things about you? Don't you just want to disappear? Don't you want to crawl in some hole that proverbial hole, right? There's a lot of holes all around because that we all want to crawl into. It's embarrassing, but the beauty, the beauty of godly communication is that it usually leads to better understanding. It usually leads to uh, it, a grace being breathed into that friendship. It, it, it exposes the wonderful news of God's grace and his good news and the gospel in, in our life. When we have godly communication, we usually learn more about the love of Jesus for us and the, and the love that we should have for others. We usually feel loved by that person, and we usually are empowered and encouraged to, to spread that love to others when we pursue this godly communication. And so we have no reason to fear feeling humiliated, humiliated or feeling small or feeling belittled or people finding out about our weaknesses because humility is a character that God loves. 
Humility is what brings you and I to that proper size, that proper size to enter into the kingdom of God. Humility is, is one of those characteristics that, is, that images, images who God is, who Jesus is, as he humbled himself. He became small, to, to use that word. He became little. He became insignificant. He was humbled and humiliated, and he became nothing on the cross. And so we don't have to be afraid of, of, of being like that. It's a good place to be if confrontation causes us to be humbled. So before we get into this peacemaking, uh, this deeply embedded in this passage is, is the answer to the question, why? Because we're going to talk about the what. We're going to talk about this practical passage that says what and how. How do we do this? What do we do? But let's first look at these, the, the, the answer to the question, why? Why do we do this in the first place? Just a couple reasons quickly that I think the Bible should persuade us for how we or why we would get into uh, into these confrontations, into this conflict resolution. The first thing is out of love and concern for your brother or sister in Christ. This guide comes, this guide that Jesus gives us comes right on the heels of this great parable, the parable of the lost sheep. If you just look up just a little bit, you see this parable of the lost sheep in verse 10, where Jesus describes the love of God the Father for his sheep. He says, who when when discovers one, when discovering one of his sheep who has wandered off, goes and searches for his sheep and rejoices when it is found. So this passage is a practical guide for you and I for how to imitate the Father's love for his children. It's a practical guide for you and I to, to imitate God's love for his sheep, his children, who have wandered from the love of God, who have found them, themselves distanced from God because of their sin. The Father's concern to restore a person caught in sin now becomes the concern of all of his people, becomes the concern of his church. One of the main reasons why we might enter into confrontation, think about this, maybe it's been a cause in your life. One of the reasons why you have confronted somebody in their sin is because you wanted to air your grievances. Like you just, you wanted to tell that person all the things that they have done wrong and you needed to get it off your chest. You want them to know how they have hurt you, how they have wronged you, and how they should never do that again. And you see, that's not a motivation in this passage. It's not just to air our grievances. The motivation here is out of love for them. It's out of love and concern for them, because if they're in sin, they've wandered from God, and we want to restore them back into relationship with God and with us. So it's out of love for the other person, not about love for ourselves. Here's another reason. The second reason is for the hope of forgiveness and restored relationship. In verse 15, says it's good to notice this word here, brother, brother, if your brother sins against you. And then again, at the end of the verse, if, you li if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In this particular sense, in this particular reference, the reference brother could be appropriately attributed to all those in the family of God. For instance, men and women and children in the family of God, the term brother rather than disciple or friend or Christian helps us to see that what is at stake here is a familial relationship. What is at stake here is a, is, is a relationship that is so important to God's children. It's a family relationship. It highlights the beauty of what God has called us to be. So the shepherd in that parable, the shepherd who finds that lost sheep and brings it back into the fold is exceedingly joyful. The father in the story of the prodigal, the prodigal son is exceedingly joyful when he sees his son at a distance and runs out to meet him and brings him back and throws a party. 
Our Heavenly Father rejoices when people dwell in unity. Our Heavenly Father rejoices when two Christians come together and have godly communication where there was enmity or strife or conflict. So it's here we see the confrontation happens for the sake of confronting is, is, is not the point. The confronting for the sake of confronting is not the point. It is, this is to prevent us from saying to someone, you're, you're really an annoying person and no one likes you because you only think of yourself. Whew, I feel so much better. I just needed to tell you that, right? That's not what this is about. And maybe you're thinking, you know, gonna, you're going to get some hints here as, as we continue in this passage, and you're going to be tempted to think, wow, there's a, I, need to, I need to confront a lot of people. And I would say, no, you don't. <laughs> and if it's me, just give me a couple days, okay, please. Like, Jesus is clearly calling for some, something much more than much, something much more loving and redeeming than simply just pointing out people's faults. So this isn't a passage about, you guys need to get better about telling people how wrong they are. I think we're good at that. We're good at critiquing. What we're not good at is loving people, redeeming relationships, restoring friendships, speaking truth in love. We could use some help in that. He's talking about remembering and imitating the love of God, of our Father, who, the love that He has for us. Through His kindness and truth, He helps us to turn from our sin and, and repent of our sin and turn to His grace and find forgiveness for our sins. That's what Jesus is talking about. When we confront someone, we're, we're doing nothing less than attempting to advance the gospel in that person's life and in our life. That's our hope, is that we would see the gospel magnified in that person's life. Has that been your motivation when confronting someone in their sin? Have you thought in your mind, I need to, I feel compelled to confront this person because I want the gospel to advance in their heart and in their life, and I want them to know and love God more than they do right now? It's probably the last thing you're on your mind. Probably the things closest to our mind are, how dare they? do that to me. I'm going to put them in their place. How dare they talk to me in the way that they have talked to me? How dare they, they need to know how they hurt me so they can hurt like I am hurting. So what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, and I'll just give you a, a summary of, of chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians. Paul tells us that we should no longer treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as unbelievers who sin, but we should treat them as believers who sin, and that's very different. We should treat people who have wronged us as forgiven people, people who have been forgiven by Jesus, whose sins are forgiven, that they are in Christ and nothing can separate them from the love of God. When we confront someone as a Christian, we're confronting them and we confront them with the awareness that the Spirit of God dwells within them. And that means that God will complete the work that He has begun in that person that we believe that as the Spirit is changing that person from one degree of, of, of glory to the next, that that person genuinely wants to grow. And we should assume that person wants to respond well to our, to our exposing of their sin. So when we confront somebody, we don't treat them as an unbeliever. We treat them as someone who God is continually changing and who loves unconditionally. And so the way we confront is very different. So we're helping them. We're helping them do the best thing in the world, which is grow in the knowledge and love of God in their life. 
So godly, self, godly gospel-centered, loving, and truthful confrontation is essential for a healthy church and healthy relationships within the church. So these are the why. Let's talk about the how. Let's talk about the what. How do we do this? How can we get better at godly confrontation? And instead of creating a, different, a new formula, because I'm just going to stick with the formula that Jesus has given to us because it is so good. Highlighting some of these important things along the way. Here's step one. Here's step one. Personal communication. You don't, know, you don't have to know Greek to get the meaning of this step. <laughs> this isn't for some biblical scholar. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to study your Bible. God does not intend for people to relate to one another at a distance through other people. God, God intends that his people would relate to one another face-to-face. Face-to-face. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, if your brother sins... Jesus is not calling us for the sake of being thorough to take a spotlight and to go into that person's life in the closet of their heart to try to find sin that might be there. He's saying, if your brother has sinned against you, don't go looking to see if you can uncover sin in their life. Jesus is telling us to confront sin that's actually occurred and occurred against us personally, not against somebody else in this instance. That's why it's between two brothers, two whose relationship has been affected by this sin, and, and have a relationship with them, have a conversation with them, go face-to-face to them. And here's another word that I want to highlight, not just the word if, if, but actually the word sin. It should be sin. Sins are actions and attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that are contrary to the commands of God. Poor hygiene and talking too quickly are not sins that need to be confronted. I'm sure there are opportunities that we should talk to somebody about the way that their just personality just maybe annoys us or bothers us, but this is not talking about that. This is not giving us freedom to just tell everybody how they're annoying to us. And also, there, should be, there are minor offenses that can be overlooked entirely. So I want to work through this. It's not that we have been given permission to now confront people in their sins. What we have here, we'll be given a prescription for when certain circumstances happen that we need to confront. So it's not just permission. It's not just saying, hey guys, now we can go and confront everybody in the name of Jesus of all the things that they do to bother us. I know this sounds weird, but we don't need to seek forgiveness for every sin that has been committed against us. I know it's weird. I know it's weird in our culture and society. Someone can actually hurt you, and you can actually let it go. This is kind of a joke, but kind of true. It's kind of sarcastic, but kind of true. Do you see what I'm saying here? Someone can hurt you, and you can absorb that offense by the grace of God, and they can never know about it. Love covers over a multitude of sin. A multitude. We can reconcile with people who have hurt us unilaterally, meaning they have just offended us and inflicted us and done something harmful to us, we can, we can overlook it without them ever knowing it. It takes humility. It takes an incredible amount of personal laying down of your rights. Thinking, I deserve to be treated well by them. You do. But you can, also, you can also lay down that right, and you can love them, and you can forgive them without them ever knowing it. If you want 
if you want evidence of this, there's a couple great verses. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 17.14, the beginning of strife is like a letting out of water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Quit before the water breaks, breaks the barriers, breaks the dam down, and it just floods the relationship and destroys everything in its path. We can overlook minor offenses entirely. And again, I mentioned some of you, as we work through this passage, might be compiling a list of all the people that have hurt you, that you've been avoiding. And now, because of the sermon, you're getting energy, you're getting courage, you're getting permission to now go confront these people, and you feel permission to confront all of them. But I want to pull back the reins just a little bit to remind you that this passage is not about permission, but about a prescription for when we need to confront when there's sin that has happened in that relationship that is actually really, it's really hurting our relationship. It is, it is hindering our ability to go forward in relationship of God honoring love for one another. And I would bet that, I would bet that most conflict, most conflict that we experience between friends can be, a, can be forgiven without confrontation. So that's maybe some good advice for today, an encouragement to you that actually you can avoid confrontation. If you don't like confrontation, you can avoid most of it. You can reconcile with a person. You can restore a friendship just by, by overlooking their sin and forgiving them because of the grace of God. Do not be surprised when another person sins against you. They're sinners too. Don't be surprised when someone hurts you. You've done the same thing to them. Sometimes even worse. Every conflict involves two sinners. Every conflict is two people coming together, two broken, sinful people looking for the love and grace of Jesus together. There's never just a right person and a wrong person in a, in a conflict. We're both sinners coming together seeking the forgiveness and grace of God. That's why Jesus says when you get ready to confront a person, to, to take the log out of your own eye before you go to remove the speck in that person's eye. Jesus is telling us that when two people come together to reconcile, two, two sinners come to the table. And so we search our hearts. So step one is this. Step one is don't wait. Step one is not to wait. Have you ever, have you ever said, I'm not talking to him. He's the one who hurt me. Let him come to me. Why should I go to that person? That person was in the wrong. Well, Jesus is telling us that when we are wronged, we are to go. We are to not wait. We are to confront. Step one is about not sitting and sulking. Have you ever said to yourself, I can't believe she would say that. Who does she think she is? And you just sit and you just sulk and you, you maybe carry the burdens of the things that you heard about what were said about you and you just feel bad about yourself and you, you're consumed by those, those thoughts. Step one pulls us out of that. It says, don't wait. Don't sit and sulk, but go. Step one is not to give the cold shoulder. Have you ever just avoided the person who has hurt you for hours, for days, for weeks, for years, forever? Jesus tells us not to give the cold shoulder. And step one is not about revenge. He says we should not revenge. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, if they want to do that to me, then I'll just do the same to them? I think we've all had these thoughts. We may be having those thoughts about people in our life even now. And step one is a private conversation. It's a private conversation. Depending on your relationship with that person, this is done, and, and this is done in gentleness and truth. And sometimes, depending on the relationship, again, this isn't just 
a rule for every kind of conflict. Some conflicts should not have a one-on-one, where the relationship does not allow for that or it's unsafe, whether there has been abuse, whether you know, sexual abuse or physical abuse, when the sins are overly grievous, there should be times when you shouldn't just go to this person in private. But this is to help us to give great concern for the tone and the manner of our conversation and our confrontation with people who, have, who are, we are close with that have hurt us. It is with a spirit of humility motivated by a love for our brother and sister. If you like, if you like writing in your Bible, if you like taking notes in your Bible, which, which I do, here's a great thing that you can just underline. <laughs> here's a great phrase you can underline. Between you and him alone. I want, you to, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what that could mean for you to, to confront somebody face-to-face out of love for them, out of desire to reconcile between you and him alone. Too often we wait. Too often we gossip. Too often we let bitterness take root in our hearts, and it eats at us like a disease, and we wound our brother or sister by being indifferent to their spiritual growth. And we wait, we seek revenge, we gossip, we, 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 uh, we seek to harm their character. And you know what we hope for? You know what this, this, this pushes us to, to hope for? In verse 16, but if he does, if, or 15, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. This is what we long for and hope for. What does that mean? Sin wants to remain unknown. Sin wants to remain secret. It wants to be hidden. But the moment that you call it out, you are giving opportunity for for God to restore and redeem that person. Sin does not want to be found out. Sin in the Bible is synonymous with darkness. When you bring truth into sin, we're dismantling the schemes of the devil. We are hindering his work. We are shining a light on darkness. And, and when you shine a light on the darkness in a room, and that's when you see the cockroaches scurry, right? Depending on how dirty your house is. And, and so it's because they, they do not like the, the light. It's exposed. This is, what, this is what this godly confrontation is meant to do. Between you and him alone. If we, do not, if we do not pursue and go into these uncomfortable situations, we are allowing sin to re- remain anonymous. We are allowing it to remain hidden. We are allowing it to, to breed in the life of our brother or sister or even in our own heart. I believe truly that one of the most unloving things that you can do for another person is to let sin remain in their life without lovingly and truthfully calling it out. One of the most unloving and, 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 and inhumane and dehumanizing things you can do to a person and saying, well, that's just their fault and they got to figure it out. And Jesus says, this is not how my church should be. This is not how the, my people should act. When sin is brought into the light and confession is made by our brother, he repents of his sin, he turns to the grace of Jesus It's brought about by loving concern and he finds forgiveness of sin and fellowship with Jesus and with you. And sin has lost its power in that moment. It has been exposed. It's been weakened. It's been cast off from his heart. And it's a beautiful thing. This is our goal. This is what we hope to see through confrontation is that there would be repentance of sin, turning to Jesus, 
and finding forgiveness for that sin and a renewed sense of enjoyment with God and with you. Now what's left, what is left are two brothers who stand together from this confrontation, right? If, you've, if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Let's just end there for a moment. What do we have? What we have are two brothers who stand together in fellowship together as two forgiven people, two sinners who now live by the power of God's grace and Jesus' cross. What a great friendship. What a great thing that God has done. And I know you've been in situations like that, I imagine, where you have actually had reconciliation and you've talked through tears and even through shouts at times and you have been restored and you thank God for it and you say, I can't believe that our relationship has survived that and now it is so much better. I bet that some of your best friendships today are a result of this kind of confrontation. Am I right? Some of your lifelong and best friendships are because you confronted someone in their sin and how they hurt you and you were restored and you asked for forgiveness and you were both standing as two sinners forgiven by Jesus, looking at the cross and being amazed at his greatness in your life. That's a bond that will last forever. It's an awesome thing. Isn't that amazing what can happen? Most conflicts can be resolved in that way. Most conflicts should and can be resolved in just this first step. Go alone, face to face, tell them they're wrong, in love and humility, and enjoy God's work in that process. But not all conflict is resolved in that way. Unfortunately, it doesn't always end like that. And if it doesn't happen, we don't give up. See, we don't say, well, they didn't listen, so I put in my, I put in my time and I, I tried, and so... So uh, my hands are washed of it. We don't give up. And as God, our loving Father, does not give up on us, we continue to step two. This is persuasion with the help of others. This is desiring to see uh, an added weight or burden of, of, of conviction in that person's life with the help of others. Look at verse 16. In this step, what is intended is, is to not attack the person, but to convince the person that they're their er- convince them of their error by adding to it a force of for- added force from the original communication. Uh, easy for me to say. Added force of this original communication of, look, we want you to know what has happened. We want to know how you've been hurt by bringing a couple people, one or two. And the original, all the original tone and all the original motivation remains the same. But now we hope that God is using witnesses to come alongside you to bring acknowledgement of wrongdoing and restoration. Most, most confrontations and conflict can be resolved on our own. Second most should be resolved just with us and that person face to face. And if we need to, we have, this great, we have this prescription for how to continue to love this person through loving communication. Sometimes we will need other trusted and godly individuals to help us and to come with us. Jesus gives us this framework when we seek help from other people. Notice how Jesus is intent on keeping the circle as small as possible, and we should too. He says, first, you go to this person, just you and him alone. Then, bring one or two other people with you, maybe three. So Jesus is very intent on saying, guys, I'm, not talking, I'm talking about minimizing as much as possible the, rip, the, the, the ripple effect of relationship of people that can be hurt by this. Keep it small. This is one of the great benefits that we have in the body of Christ. 
is we can go to person one-on-one. -on -one. We have people that love us and that love others that we can bring along with us if needed. It isn't only for gathering evidence and persuasion. It could also help to promote good communication. Maybe you're just really bad at this and you don't know how to talk with, with love and truth. And so it's good to bring some uh, like a mentor or a person that's a mutual friend along and say, can you just help us think through these things together? There's a lot of strife. There's a lot of hurt feelings. Can you help us work through it? And that person can, can bring some great encouragement and communication to the process. Usually it should be both, somebody that both people know and trust. Notice that, notice that this, in this step, the guilty brother is not treated like a criminal. You see, this isn't an intervention, a confrontation. This isn't some, they're not coming to expose this person, and they're not treated like a, like a, like a criminal, like an unbeliever. He's given time. He's, he's walked through a process. He's given tons of patience. He's treated like a friend and like an equal. It's still your brother. This is still a conversation of brother to brother, sister to sister, friend to friend, believer to believer. This is still a relationship of family members. The point of this step is to broaden the circle just slightly to bring wisdom and encouragement into it. So you with me so far? You see these first two steps so far of godly confrontation, of face-to-face, -face, bringing along a friend or two or three at the most to add just added communication to the process and encouragement to talk about how we're doing, to bring restoration. So far, so far, if you're tracking with me, this has seemed very fair, very reasonable, very loving. This is good, and you're thinking, I can do this. I can do this. And then I can even think about some situations where I've done this wrong, and I want to, I want to do it better next time. I promise the next two steps won't feel the same. <laughs> you're not going to feel as good, because the first two steps seem reasonable. This is, this is great. We can work with this. The next two steps will seem different than the first. Let's, let's read verse 17 again. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In these steps, the unrepentant sinner, the is, his sins are made known to the church. And then even a step further, if sin persists, they are to be treated as an unbeliever and not a part of the family of God. Admittedly, this feels like a big jump. Admittedly, this, this step feels like a big jump forward. Things escalate quickly here. And I'm willing to be uncomfortable with you. If you're uncomfortable as we talk through this, I'm willing to be uncomfortable with you as well because no one likes to do this. But as we talk about this, we need to look at what Jesus' wisdom and intent is. So let me, make, let me make the case for this, what Jesus says. Uh, be, Beneath what appears in this passage to be this, a disguise of embarrassment and cruelty for that person is truly an act of love and care. That's Jesus' point. And I think I can make my case, and I want to persuade you, that what seems like just a, an attempt to belittle, demean, humiliate, and to kick out and to deal with or manage a sinner that hasn't repented is this act of love and care that God has for us. We need to feel the tone of, of behind what Jesus is saying. Even if I, I even read this passage wrong, and maybe you read it wrong, and I read it wrong this morning. I read it like an owner's manual for setting up a new trampoline or something in the backyard. Step one, talk to the person face-to-face. -face. Check, we're doing great. Step two, take, take one person or three people. Use some elbow grease. It's kind of a group effort. Step four, tell the church of all their sin, okay? Step, step four, treat him like, like he's not your brother anymore. Hey, I think we did everything, every, every step. It's all set up. 
This it feels like an owner's manual. We're just going through these steps unemotionally. But there's something else here. This, the tone is not one of just following steps. What is it? What is it? What is it? God's heart in all this. God loves us so much that He sends a shepherd to go out and to find a lost sheep. God loves us so much that He sends out an army of shepherds to go to go and bring back that same lost sheep who is persistently rebellious. God loves us so much that he would hand us over to our own sin as a way of divine discipline because of his love for us. Do you see this progression? The tone is God's love. The motivation is his love for us. The motivation is restoration, not punishment, not embarrassment or humiliation. This is God's way of using the church to say this, we love you and we want you to come back to Jesus. We love you and we care about you so much that we do not want you to be subject to the judgment of God, and we love you, we're pleading with you, come back to Christ, acknowledge your sin, ask for forgiveness, be restored in relationship to God and to us. It's an act of God's divine love that he would say these things. And again, the goal is not punishment, the goal is not embarrassment or ridicule, or even, or even to set one person as as holier than another. It's not even just to expose sin and say, okay, now you know that you're wrong and we are right. It is to restore a person to Christ and to one another. It's to help another person see their sin and to return them to Jesus so that the sin does not spread into the life of the church or even beyond that. It's for the honor of Christ, the purity of his church, and the restoration of a brother to a brother. How much does Jesus care about his church? How much does he love his church and desire their well-being? So much. So much so that he calls us into difficult situations. So much so that he would actually go into his own difficult situation by giving his own life to die on the cross. He died. He, that's how much he loves you and how much he loves the church and how, how badly he wants us to be reconciled to one another. How important is this to Jesus? It's more important than his very life. How important is this to God the Father that we would imitate his love and concern for one another, so much so that he would give his own son to die for it. It's so beautiful, so important. How much he cares about this exercise of confrontation and discipline in the church is, is, is reinforced with this oddly phrased verse at the end, um, verse 18 and 19 I want to talk about. He says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, uh, two of you agree on earth about anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. What, a, what an odd way to talk about this when we talk about conflict, binding things and loosening things on earth, and it will be loosed in heaven. It means... It means this, Jesus is not giving leaders in the church or the church itself some kind of special power or some kind of special authority. He's telling the church that we have permission to reflect the glory of God by confronting sin and calling people to repentance. It means that if anyone says, I know I'm sinning, I, desire, I don't desire to change, and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and you can't tell me otherwise. We can say to that person, then God has not forgiven you of your sins, and you are not in Christ. 
That's a scary saying, isn't it? But we have been given permission to image God, reflect the glory of God, and to speak His truth, not on our own authority, but because God has already said it. He's already told us this in His Word, that if someone says and remains in their sin and says, I know I'm sinning, but I don't care, then we can say, then God has not forgiven you, and you don't belong to Him. Their sin is not unforgiven because we said so. It's not like we are the ones who judge whose sin is forgiven or not. It's because Jesus has said so. It's because Jesus has said if people are unrepentant in their sin and remain in their sin, then they don't belong in him. And so we have the permission to just say what Jesus has already said. We don't have the permission to say what he has not said. We don't have the permission to take his authority and build on it. We don't have permission to take his authority and to make it our own and say, by the authority invested in me, we have to say, this is Jesus speaking to you through my mouth, through his word. But look at the flip side of this, because that that's scary. We get to speak the words of Christ, but look at the flip side. I can declare to you with all of the authority and of Jesus and all of the power in heaven that if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus who died for you, then you are free from sin forever and belong to Jesus and nothing can take that away. Says you. No, says God. This is what God says. That's what this passage means when you bind something on earth or loose it on earth. I can, I can say you're forgiven of your sins. How do you know? Because God says so in his word. Or I can say, you're condemned in your sin, and you do not belong to Jesus. Well, how do you say that? I don't say that. God says that. What an amazing opportunity we have as image bearers of God and members of his church to speak such beautiful things into the life of other people. It's not our stuff. It's not our words. It's not our prophecy. It's God's great gospel. That if we turn from sin and trust in him who died for us, then we are in Christ forgiven, a new creation, reconciled with God on the merits of Jesus Christ. We get to tell people that all day long. There is nothing better that will ever come out of my mouth than that. Nothing better that I could ever tell you that if you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, then you are forgiven and a new creation loved by God. What an amazing thing to tell somebody. So Jesus isn't just giving us a blank check. He's not just giving us a blank check to say or to do whatever we want. He has given us full permission to proclaim the things that he has already said in his word. Full confidence that if we are saying the things that God has said and promising the things that God has promised, we have every reason to believe that it will happen. That's what Jesus says when he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I among you. He says, if you ask anything on earth, if you agree on anything on earth, then the Father will do it. Well, we just don't know the will of God in that person's life. No, we do. We do know. If that person is, is turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus, we can say that you are in Christ, you are forgiven, and you belong to him. When we speak the words of Jesus, God the Father himself supports all that we say. That's amazing. Talk about an endorsement. <laughs> Talk about an encouraging endorsement, how we know that he is endorsing everything that we say when we are speaking the words of Jesus, the full weight 
an endorsement of God of the universe is behind us, saying, that's right, that's right, I'm going to do just what you said. He's with us in this process. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. What a great passage and likely one of the most abused passages in the Bible. <laughs> Does it mean that God isn't with you if you're praying alone? <laughs> and he's waiting at your threshold of your door as you're praying alone in your room and you're just like, would someone else get in here so God will listen to me? Will someone get, else, get in here so we could agree together? And now Jesus will say, okay, now I can come in and be with you. That's not what's happening. Does it mean that God is, is with a group of Christians no matter what those group of Christians say? Absolutely not. A group of Christians can, re, re, can agree on something and it can be wrong. And Jesus can say, I don't agree with that. Well, you said where two or more are gathered and we agree in your name. That's not in my name. You're not saying what I said. You're not believing what I believe. But neither is true. What does it mean? It means when we are doing together the tough work of confronting a brother in sin for God's glory and their restoration, Jesus is with us. He is supporting us. He is encouraging us. He is working in us and among us to bring about his purposes for that brother. That's what it means. It means when you and I are obedient to Jesus to have godly confrontation and enter into those messy conversations, we can trust that we are not alone. Because those situations are scary, aren't they? Those are uncomfortable and none of us want to do it. And so Jesus says, okay, let me help you. When you do that, I'm with you. And my power is with you and I'm working in you and I'm working among you. And this is so helpful because if you've ever had to confront someone in sin, there are, there are fewer times where you and I feel more isolated and alone than in that moment. If you've ever gone to confront somebody, you feel like you don't have a friend in the world. You feel like everything, the whole world is just like, kind of the edges are getting dark in your vision. You feel isolated. You feel alone. You feel helpless and hopeless. And it's in those times that Jesus reminds us that he's with us, that he is fighting with us and for us. And so, so is this a tough passage, brothers and sisters? It is. But it's good. And I want to say, I want to say take heart. Take heart when you choose to lovingly confront. Jesus' presence is especially real and especially strong in the middle of that situation. And that should give you and I great confidence and great encouragement to follow his commands, to love our brother or sister who has wronged us, to seek reconciliation and restoration, and to long with great expectancy for the good work he's going to do when we follow him. Let's pray.